Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, Digital Comment Editor, and this week we'll be discussing Barack Obama's visit to the UK and his intervention in the EU referendum. Plus, has the government done the right thing by stalling its latest academies programme? To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by our Deputy Editor, Rula Kalaf, the FT's Chief Political Commentator, Philip Stevens, Public Policy Reporter, Gonzalo Vina, and Isabel Berwick, Assistant Features Editor. Thank you all for joining. So let's begin with Barack Obama's visit to the UK, which has undoubtedly been the focus of the referendum campaign this week. The president dropped by to see the Queen on her 90th birthday, but more importantly, for a political podcast anyway, was his long-awaited intervention in the Brexit campaign. President Obama attacked those campaigning for Britain wanting to leave the EU, arguing that our membership magnifies the power of Britain and warned that a US-UK trade deal won't be happening anytime soon. He also made some interesting remarks about NATO and that infamous Winston Churchill bust in the Oval Office. So, Rula, if I could begin with you, we always knew that Barack Obama was going to say Britain should remain in the EU, but his comments were a bit stronger than we were expecting, weren't they? Yes, absolutely. I think Obama went all out and campaigned, I think, very vigorously, which should be great for for the Remain campaign. But I think he was also very specific. Asked about the trade deal, he said the UK would be last in the queue. And I think that is the main takeaway from this intervention. But I think he also gave a view, and I don't think necessarily this is something that, you know, Cameron would have pressed him to do, or I think this is something that he truly, deeply believes, that the UK is simply much stronger within the EU and that it can leverage its power a lot more if it remains part of the EU. Philip Stevens, the two messages that came across for me, one was saying, you're better off, you know, the no man's and small island quote, the idea that Britain's power is not restricted, it's made better. But then the other thing was that key attack on the Brexit campaign, because a lot of Brexit campaigners have said, well, if we leave the EU, we can get any trade deal we want. We can get any trade deal with America. And his thing's saying that Britain will be at the back of the queue. It's going to be very big in this campaign, it seems. Yes, I thought Barack Obama's intervention, while being very clear and very firm, was also actually rather measured. His tone, I think, contrasted rather starkly with some of the almost sort of near hysteria we heard from some of the Brexiteers before he spoke. We had people, you know, like Boris Johnson calling him a hypocrite and actually, you know, rather nastily, I thought, referring to his Kenyan ancestry. And I think what you had from Obama was the calm president, the considered politician, who laid out two arguments. One, as you said, the European Union is the way for Britain to amplify its power. And he gave examples of that in and if you like, so what he was saying is that transatlantic relationship is strengthened 
by the fact that Britain is a powerful voice in Europe. And then the second point he made, as you said, is that, you know, much as the US and Britain will always be special friends, we really won't get any special favours if we pull out of Europe and we'll be at the back of the queue. There was certainly a very bromantic tone between the pair because obviously I think there's never been maybe an ideological connection between David Cameron and Barack Obama, but they've certainly always had a decent working relationship aside from what happened with bombing Libya and that whole business in the House of Commons. But looking at them today, this could be one of their last press conferences with Barack Obama. You know, he might visit the UK again, but this is certainly the last big thing they're going to do together. David Cameron looked, you know, quite statesman-like then. Again, that's an image I'm sure he wanted to put across. What did you make of the body language, Philip? No, I thought it was quite strong, and I think Cameron was impressive. And I think both conveyed the idea that this isn't just about Britain and Europe. This is about the coherence of the West. They talked about the jihadi, the terrorist threat. They talked about Putin and Putin's revanchism in Ukraine. And the message that was coming across was here are Britain and the US standing together as they have during and since the Second World War. And Britain staying in Europe is about preserving the coherence of the West, our values, our democratic values and freedoms. So I thought the two of them actually played that line rather effectively. I think Philip is absolutely right. First of all, Obama was very, very relaxed when he was asked about Boris Johnson's remarks. But I think they also showed that they had a very good working relationship. If you recall recently, we've, you know, we've had all these reports of tensions, you know, over Libya and just the whole sort of Obama view that Europeans are free riders. And I think what Obama tried to do here is precisely what Philip is referring to, is to give a historic view and emphasize the importance of Europe for the US and the importance of the, of the special relationship. Because what was very interesting to see, Ruler, was his reference to Winston Churchill, because we've seen today that Boris Johnson, the mayor of London, who certainly models himself on Churchill in a way, and wrote this astonishing article in The Sun newspaper where he referred to Obama as a part Kenyan president referred to this situation where Churchill bust was removed from the Oval Office not long after he went into office and there's been a lot of backwards and forth on having multiple busts and whether the bust was given to George W. Bush, etc, etc. But the way he turned that about Churchill's values and the way it pains across the world, I thought was again very striking and very forceful as well. And the imagery there. Well, I think he absolutely nailed the Churchill question. But I think what shocks me is that, you know, Boris writes these articles without even researching it, because there was a piece in, in the Washington Post that explained what happened with the bust and the fact that this was a decision that was taken before Barack Obama came into the White House. I think the contrast this week has been between grown-up politicians like Obama, like Cameron, addressing the policy issues, and there are very big policy issues here, and people like Boris, frankly, who are just really hurling insults. It's a sort of yaboo approach. Now, Michael Gove did have a stab at giving an alternative view of Britain outside Europe, but then he fell over because he found himself comparing Britain to Albania and Serbia and Bosnia and Ukraine. 
So I think really overall the Remain camp has had, could call this week their own. One more thing on Obama. I thought it was very striking the affectionate words he had for the Queen. And he lunched with her in Windsor Castle. And I thought it came across as very, very genuine affection. And I think he had a wonderful story about one of his hard-bitten staffers you know, desperate to be in line to sort of meet the Queen and almost falling over when she had that experience. And I think, you know, anyone watching that will see Obama is sometimes rather aloof, but here you saw Obama, the person, greatly, I think, affectionate towards the Queen and towards Britain. I thought his repeated references to the Queen were very interesting because I saw them as trying to send a message to the British people of, you know, the affinity that he feels with Britain. So I saw that as part of his role in the campaign. And it was interesting because the special relationship, again, going back to Churchill, was mentioned several times. And I think, you know, the president said the special relationship would not end if we left the EU. So, you know, again, as Philip was saying, the language was quite measured. It was not hyperbole here. But he, you know, he painted very clearly it would, there would have consequences if we did leave the EU. But the question, I suppose, Rula, is how much does this matter? Because Obama is a president in his twilight. He's got no end of problems at home, not least the potential legacy of Islamic State and even Donald Trump, you know, in the Oval Office. So when British voters see what he said today, what do you think they're going to see? And what will American voters think when they've seen Barack Obama standing beside David Cameron? I think for American voters, this is very understandable and and unexpected. I think, you know, most American voters would probably think that he's not necessarily interfering. I mean, you know, Cameron made the point, this is not an election. This is a referendum. This is about the future of Europe. So I think Americans would be very understanding. Now, what will voters here make of this? I mean, what we've seen over the past few weeks is no argument. They just dismissed every single argument, whatever it is. And particularly if it comes from the outside, I think it's more difficult to dismiss an argument by Barack Obama because I think there is a special relationship. But I think we'll have to wait and see. I mean, what we've seen this morning from Boris is not very reassuring. I think let's be clear here as well. This isn't a U.S. president sort of coming over and butting in. This is a U.S. president standing. Say he is though. No, but no. Well, this is. Let's be clear here. This is a US president standing next to the elected prime minister of Britain and giving his views at the invitation of the elected prime minister. So this isn't him, as Rula said, coming in and barging into a general election. This is at the invitation, and indeed we know, at the urging of the elected prime minister of Britain. So I don't think, you know, one can accuse him. I mean, he said, look, you know, candid friends have to offer their advice. And if I'm sure that the British people want to hear the views, not just of the US president, but of all our friends around the world, of the Australian prime minister, of the Canadian prime minister, of the New Zealand prime minister, the Indian prime minister. I mean, the British don't, I'm sure, don't want to shut their ears to what their friends in the world think about this. And I suppose that's the, my final question to you, Philip, is how are the Brexit campaigners going to respond to this? Because I can sort of see already 
these comments about going to the back of the queue, they'll say, well, Barack Obama won't be in office by the time we have to negotiate that deal. So how's he going to know? We could have a Republican president who might take a very different view and might increase the importance of a UK trade well, deal. The weakness w- with that argument is that we also had this week a whole phalanx of former US Treasury secretaries lining up saying it would be extremely foolhardy of Britain to leave. And among that group, that distinguished group, were a large number of Republicans. So if you go to Washington, this isn't a Democrat-Republican issue. The presidents since the war have wanted, Republican and Democrat, have wanted Britain to be a big player in Europe. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. This is not an issue that plays in internal American politics. This is not going to be an issue in the campaign. There aren't really differences between Republicans and Democrats. I don't think Barack Obama is only speaking for the Democrats. Barack Obama is speaking for the view of the American establishment. And I've just got one last point I forgot to mention. We always do this on every podcast. It's think on balance been a good week for Remain this one. Did Remain vote ruler? I'm still with the Remain vote. Philip? I'm with a Remain vote, but I don't think anyone should take anything for granted. Brilliant. And now on to the government's plan to force all schools to become academies. Building up the academies programme has been a key part of this government and the last coalition government's agenda, and they announced plans to turn all schools in Britain into academies in George Osborne's budget last month. But this week, the Financial Times has reported that the programme is being slowed down or possibly kicked into the long grass. So it may never happen, or it might be quite a long way into the future. So what was all this forced academisation about, and what does this mean for the Education Secretary Nicky Morgan? So, Gonzalez, can you begin just by explaining to us what this forced academies programme was about and whether it was a good idea? Well, there are about 24,000 schools in the UK. About 17,000 of those are primaries. The controversial area seems to be around the primaries now. We've had about two-thirds of secondaries converting already. And this is basically an effort to just make them all break away from local authorities so that they are run instead of by their local council, they are run by either a trust or by themselves independently. So Isabel Berwick, as a colleague of mine on the FT's Common Desk, I know what your views are, academies are, both as a parent, as an advocate against them. So what did you make of the forced academies policies? It's just another example of the government pushing a neoliberal free market agenda. I was quite shocked, I have to say. I did understand the original reason for academisation under the last Labour government, actually, where there were a lot of bad failing schools. And I think to release some of those schools and allow them freedom, great idea. I happen to live in North London. We have a great local authority. Both my children are in excellent local authority comprehensives. We work together, all the schools work together, sport, music. It feels very much a community-led thing. And I'm very pleased that we have a sort of separation. Essentially, the local authority is democratically elected. Parents have a say. And I think what struck me most about these plans is that there's a threat that parent governors may go, that these schools will be run by academy chains, which are quite remote, and also regional commissioners. I mean, where is the accountability? I think that's the key thing, isn't it, Gonzalo? The idea that you would just replace local authorities with academy chains. And there's a lot of scepticism about how 
good these chains of academies are, these are organisations that run several academies, and have only really been successful in London as well. The results out of London are much sketchier, if I'm right. Absolutely. I mean, this is the biggest shake-up since the 1870 Education Act. The link between local and school is being broken for the first time. So there are going to be all sorts of issues around standards. How do you ensure that standards are maintained? You know, can the regional school commissioners really deliver that? We're not sure. We're not sure how much power they're going to have exactly what they're going to be doing. On admissions, how do you ensure that when an academy turns away a kid because they behave badly or, you know, they may have behavioural problems, how do you ensure if the local authorities in charge that they are educated? And local authorities have a statutory duty to deliver that. But of course, as Isabel just said, it's, there are some good stories here. Academies have worked in the government. You know, what can you say about the data of that? Because I think a lot of Conservative spokesmen will say academies are proven to be a success. They're proven to turn around failing schools. You know, how much of that is an overstatement? I think it's a, a fairly big overstatement. Michael Wilshaw, the, uh, the, the head of Ofsted, has said that there are too many academies that aren't delivering. At the bottom, there are some very good ones and, and there are many that aren't. And uh, the evidence, to be honest, is mixed at best on their performance. Certainly, anecdotally, I have a lot of friends with children in academy schools. What they seem very good at is very strict uniforms. They tend to have a no-tolerance policy. They have fancy uniforms. They have crests. Does this translate? Not really. And another issue that's a huge amount of concern to many parents is the teachers' terms and conditions. Academies can negotiate teachers' pay. It's essentially, are the teachers happy? They often have quite a high turnover, in my experience and that of my friends. One of the things Gonzalo mentioned was about primary schools here. So, so far, a lot of the academies have just been secondary schools. And I think, you know, there's a few thousand of them are now academies where, you know, it's a huge jump here. In terms of that, do you think that this will eventually happen? You know, is this just an endless march or is this a real stumbling block for the government, do you think? I think the issue with primary schools may be a stumbling block. There are so many primary schools, each of them is a little microcosm. Some of them have only 200 pupils or fewer in the countryside. I think there may be bigger groupings to be had in terms of grouping primary schools together. But I think if they'd just stuck with the secondary school plans, that might have been one thing. But this, they've just bitten off more than they can chew. I think you could possibly be right. I mean, one thing that we shouldn't forget is that the government has said this is a a six-year programme. It's not going to happen next week. When I've spoken to the department, they are not giving a time frame for when there's going to be any legislation in place. So it's running to trouble now. There's been some opposition from the Tory backbenches. But it's a long-term plan. You know, we've got Brexit to get out of the way. We don't quite know what shape the government's going to be in over the next few months. So I suspect it's getting bogged down in the immediate future, but I wouldn't doubt the resolve to kind of push this through. I suppose this is what's the interesting political element of this, is the idea that the Prime Minister's operation, number 10, is all focused on fighting the EU referendum with Barack Obama in the country, as we discussed earlier on this podcast. You know, this is where all the focus is at the moment. And this is a big policy. I think we would, none of us would disagree on that. And introducing this in a budget to sort of maybe brush over some of the questionable growth figures and other things, it seems like a bit of a political miscalculation here. And this is not the first thing this has happened, you know, that everyone's thinking about the EU referendum and not about domestic politics. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, as you say, it was presented in the budget when there wasn't much money to spend on anything, when there wasn't much to celebrate. And it was interesting that it was briefed first by the Treasury, not by the Department of Education, this policy. And, you know, if George Osborne was the main backer, he's not there now. It's all down to Nicky Morgan. But as I say, I really think this is, uh, you know, they've got several years to kind of push this through. And once, you know, if the party's in a stronger position after June the 23rd, then I think they can start building on that. 
I suppose the thing is we have no idea what's going to happen after the EU referendum and if we do have Brexit then I think all better off for policy or who's running the country or who's running the Conservative Party. Because Gonzalo said that this is certainly a key part of the Conservatives' uh, mandate. This is, was in their manifesto. This is what they're going to want to do here. You know, for those of, like you who feel they are not the right thing, what can you do to sort of stop this from happening? And do you ever think there's going to be any case for enlarging academies? I think realistically what may happen is that some successful local authorities, like my local authority, Camden, will probably turn itself into an academy chain. I believe something similar has been, already been done in Hackney. I think that may be the way forward for those of us who don't love academies run by businesses or religious groups. I think there's an expertise in local authorities that could be transferred. I think I'm accepting that this is going to happen, but I'm still kicking against it. And do you think, you know, the idea of academies and to a lesser extent free schools was also to bring choice into the education system, the idea that you, you know, in the state sector, you could go and you wouldn't have to just go to your prescribed local school, you know, that's a good thing for parents to have choice if they can't afford independent schools. Yes, I think, although very often choice in the state sector is actually a mirage, particularly in London, you know, one tends to get allocated to school. Uh, more free schools are great if they're in the right places. I think part of the problem has been that there's no requirement to liaise with the local authority and where the places are needed. And we have seen that in London. Equally, I do agree. I think freedom can be a good thing. Glad to hear all for freedom and prosperity at the Financial Times. Gonzalo, this is a big question about the Academy's programme, the idea that, first of all, the religious schools element, which has brought some very controversial headlines, you know, how big a problem is that? And also the planning about where they're actually happening, because I think everyone would agree there's a need for more schools, better schools, more school places. To what extent are academies just going and building them without actually thinking about where they need to be? I don't think there's a huge amount of evidence of that. And most of the dynamic is about taking over existing schools. One thing I would add that is very interesting, there's point about the local authorities turning themselves into trust. My worry with this is that they will end up will end up having the, the worst of both worlds, where you've got the same people effectively running a group of schools without the democratic kind of counterbalance or the democratic checks on them that they have at the moment. This is one area of concern where it's, I'm not sure what's being achieved. And then you get into all sorts of other problems when these kind of quasi-governmental bodies are left on their own, you know, you start getting big pay differentials and all these other issues that you see. And so I, we'll have to see where this ends up. I suppose the original idea is they were disruptors to the existing exactly. system. And then when the disruptor becomes the system, you end up in stagnancy again. And that's the problem you had with local authorities over many years. They weren't challenged and it sort of ended up in a bureaucratic dirge. And if we end up the same with academies, where's that going to leave us? Exactly. I suspect the Secretary of State will have the ultimate say on who gets given permission. So if it's a local authority that's not had a good track record, I would imagine central government will say, you can't do it. And if it's a good local authority, then they'll probably let them turn into trust. But I'm speculating they've not spoken about this. And very finally, Isabel, obviously, as you said, you've got your views on education. Based on your experiences and those of other parents, what's the trust level like towards this government? Now, obviously, you're going to be sceptical of it. But does the idea that they've introduced this policy and then brought it back and then we might bring it forward again in the future, how does that make you feel about the competence of Nikki Morgan in the education department? It's not good, is it? If she were in charge of a school, I think the PTA would perhaps be not rerunning too many bake sales in her support. Well, we can look forward to some cakes from Nikki Morgan in the future in the form of future policies. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening.
If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.